It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Scano Sego on Bojo Kwekwe Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. You could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app if you have downloaded that app and type in. 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM and you can be listening anywhere across the country on your device of choice and you can also be listening on our website I imagine anywhere across the globe if you have access. Welcome to the show for today. We have a very interesting show and I might add that our first guest uh, who is here in the studio with me uh, has a very uh, unique sense of humor as I've been exposed to already in the last couple of minutes as I've been sitting here speaking with him, uh, David Rubin Pictokin, and he is an artist sculptor. I wanted to let you also know that uh, coming up later in the program, we are going to have a call-in from Kathleen Martins. She is an investigative journalist with the Aboriginal People's Television Network. She is in Gatineau, Quebec, and she is going to be coming online to talk to us about the final report of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls report that is coming out today. She's going to give us an update on what she's seen there this morning and uh, her, her thoughts on uh, what she sees happening around there, uh, what uh, the sense of mood is around this, and what we can anticipate perhaps coming out of this in the near future from the federal government. So I'd like to welcome uh, David Rubin Piktokum to our show this morning. As I mentioned, he is an artist and sculptor. And David, welcome to our show. Thanks for being here today. Yes, uh, nice to be here. Well, it's a pleasure having you you here. And uh, you are you you live locally at this point in time, but but home is actually a long way away from you. Your original homeland. My original, uh, my point of origin is a little village called uh, Paulatuk in the north in the western Arctic of the Northwest Territories. A village of 350-some-odd people. And with dogs, it's about how many, you were saying? 3,000. <laughs> 3,000 plus. Yeah. And how long did you live there before your work took you away from there? I, 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 I believe uh, I was about six years old when they collected... Uh, uh. So, a number of children to go to residential school. Yeah, so that's when you actually left the community. Yes, I did. And you were in residential school for how long and where did you go? Uh, recollection of 13 years I went to, uh, we were uh, brought to a little village called Aklavik mm. in the in the uh, Mackenzie Delta area. Mm. Mm. Now, you, you used an interesting word just before we came on air about that, that whole experience of going to residential school. You said it was an education in? It, it's, it, for me, it was an education in forgetting. And for, uh, forgetting. for a native child, I, they, they taught us to forget how to speak, forget our language, mm-hmm. to forget our customs and traditions that we're accustomed to, even at a young age like... You have certain things that you that mm-hmm. really uh, that you rely on to, sure. to in your life. Yeah. So when you you were there for thirteen years, is that what you said? Yes, I I, I was thirteen years in uh, in, in two different uh, in a couple different residential schools. Mm. 
And by then, I'd, uh, I'm able to, I literally forgot everything about being Eskimo, being Inuit, they would say it right now. Mm-hmm. And so when you left, what did you do? Where did you go? This, uh, I was, uh, I, I just went looking for work. Mm. And uh, I was young and confident, and uh, I tried everything. Uh, I, I didn't really fit in the workforce because I, I didn't know how to, it was, I was like a stranger to the workforce, mm. but I tried every job. I got fired from every job, mm. literally. Mm-hmm. Shortest one was 15 minutes long. I was working as a drywaller. Mm. And a big bucket of mud collapsed on my whole whole head. Ooh. Said, uh, this job's not for me. Right. So I literally walked off the job and I I, I kept I kept searching for other, other work and, yeah. but eventually I was introduced to stone carving by my brother how, Abraham. How old, how old were you at that, that point in time? I was just turned eighteen. Okay. Eighteen some. Okay. And, uh, and your brother Abraham introduced you. My brother Abraham introduced me to uh, stone carving. Yes, yeah. I was. He went to visit me in Vancouver when I was there, mm-hmm. and he uh, told me what stone carving was, and uh, and uh, I got very interested. I was working off the of stone chips, mm. feeling the uh, kept studying and feeling the material mm. from. His off cuts, and uh, that was uh, back in 1972. Okay. And I've never stopped since. I've, I've just kept exploring the medium. What do, you, what do you think it was that drew you to it in terms of, you know, the texture, the feel? It, it sounds like that's what really kind of drew you to it initially. Yes, what really drew me was the, uh, it felt really, uh, it felt silky and mm. smooth, and, mm. and it was easy. The stone itself was very easy to carve. So, is that soapstone you're talking about, or what kind of yeah, stone? Yeah, that this the the first stone that I uh, worked with was uh, uh, Seattle steatite. Okay, which like a lime colored, uh, like a lime colored material, and uh, this material has an interesting story. It's been blasted out of the ground, but they they they. The, the the stone suppliers they they still market it, and the only problem is like uh, it's been blasted out of the ground yeah. in search for in search for asbestos fiber. But Ooh. so when you're carving it, it literally falls apart like a cheap suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I started. And, um, I so I guess you you moved up to something a little more <laughs> reliable. Yes. More uh, well. It took many years to learn how to select material, mm. and, and and the better the material, the more cost, the more yeah. it would cost. But sure. I eventually I, I was able to to buy really good quality material. So and w- just keep exploring. When what kind of tools do you use for carving those kind of things? I uh, the stone is quite soft. Yeah, the first materials that I started with so. These were all woodworking tools like wood rasps okay, yeah. and files and mm. uh, and uh, chisels yeah. and gouges. Yeah. You still need a wooden mallet. Mm. You still need your, your traditional metal, metal mm. 
metal mallet and yeah. uh, now and all the chipping tools. So you've been you've been at this for about fifty years, as you mentioned, just for our listeners uh, uh, are, are aware of. Yeah, uh, nineteen seventy-two would be. 44 years okay. or something, 43, yeah. 44, but borderlining 50. Yeah, so, and the other thing, just so, just so our listeners have a sense of your accomplishments, um, you were mentioning that some of your work just line the line the waterfront here on uh, Queen's Key in the, in the Toronto area. Queen's Key, uh, there's a large one that I did at the John Key Parkette mm-hmm. beside the, the Harbour Marine uh-huh. Police Station. Yep. That one is called the. Uh, That's an odd name. <laughs> yeah, how quickly they forget. But anyhow, it uh, it it borderlines the CN Tower, mm. and uh, and it, I I recall it was installed uh, uh, Earth Day. Oh yeah, back mm-hmm. in nineteen ninety some. Right. Or is it nineteen thirty two? Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere in there, and uh, it was Earth Day. Mm. And, uh, I, I, the material is from uh, the Wyerton Peninsula. Oh, yeah. Limestone mm. aggregate. Mm. It's about 16 feet high, and, uh, and, and the materials are laid out. It must have some weight to it, I imagine. It, it, it was had a lot of tonnage, and, yeah. uh, and I had a number of uh, workers helping me. I bet, but, uh, yeah. So can we talk a little bit about that, going from a size of a sculpture that is 16 feet high, of that size, and going down to something smaller, you know, you can hold in your hands. What's the what's the difference in approaching something like that? Well, my first works, I, I was reflecting on it uh, last night, were, uh, were uh, six or eight pendants that I carved. Oh, like, yeah? Uh, mm. When I first started stone carving, mm. I was just experimenting with the with the tools. Mm-hmm. I had basic tools, three or four tools, and um, sandpaper. And uh, I, my brother gave me a, a few instructions because he had to leave. He was en route to Alaska, so he mm. told me, "You're on your own, David." <laughs> <laughs> I literally have been since, <laughs> but. Um, but the first pendants, and I recall my first uh, income. Jeez, mm. I believe it, uh, the 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 figure still it sticks to my head. It's fifty six dollars, or maybe might have mm. been fifty eight dollars. Right. This was uh, this was my first paycheck of stone carving, so I I figured I could make a living out of this. It obviously sounds like something you you not only were drawn to, but you obviously enjoyed it as well. Yes. Well, I got tired of being fired, so uh, <laughs> I uh, I became an artist. <laughs> I literally can't fire myself, but I could try. But I uh, I, I was very fortunate to, to be able to work for myself mm. and, and uh, not having someone over yeah. looking over my shoulder yeah. and telling me how to jump, when yep. to jump, yep. and how uh, high. I hear you. You know that that's interesting because obviously your 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 artistry has enabled you to become a self sufficient entrepreneur. Basically, it's uh you know that that creative process that you bring yes. uh, to life is has 
is wonderful because it's taken you uh, around the world, as you as you mentioned. But before yes. we get there, um, when you when you you got that first, you carved those first pendants, and you started to get a paycheck. Was it was it the money that you went? Hey, I like this. Obviously, you must have enjoyed that you got paid for it, but. Did you you must have also felt something in working with these materials and working with with you know being a carver? It must have spoke to you. Well, it took the better part of uh, maybe five years, mm-hmm. and uh, but within the five years, I uh, I just kept honing my skills, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I I was literally I literally uh, was self taught, you know, yeah. by trial and error. Sure. Yeah. And eventually, the better part of five years, these images uh, started coming alive and mm. start, be, start formulating images. And uh, and uh, while I was doing that, I was making a little income, but I met some uh, some good collectors. The most prominent collector within that f- five-year period was... Uh, Mrs. Goner and Dr. Alan Goner out of from North Battleford, Saskatchewan. They they uh, they they told me that uh, they told me about Inuit mythology. Mm. I didn't know how to spell the word mythology, but and they said Inuit mythology explained was uh, the stories from the older people, mm. the stories that uh, have been passed down for mm. for. For uh, for for centuries, yeah, yeah, and they told me to collect these stories when you, I travel up to the Arctic, and because mm-hmm. uh, when I hear the stories, what happens in my head is that all these images ah, just come alive, right? And from these images, I can draw a lot of inspiration mm. for uh, stone carving, yeah. uh, uh, for stone carving endeavors, and. That's how I've. That's my format, all along. So that's very interesting. But there's there's something else I'm thinking there. So you get these from the the mythology, from the stories you've heard. You see these images in your mind, but then bringing that to life, is is the real process. Bring making sure because it now has to speak to other people. It, it, obviously, people started to like what you were doing, and that started to get your, your reputation, grow your your reputation. I'm assuming. The uh, uh, the process uh, to me, uh, if I can visualize it, uh, I can see the image. It means the the subject is already there, so I, I I just have to transfer it into the material, right? And kind of draw it out. Yeah. As I work it, as I work the soapstone or limestone or alabaster or any material like. Mm. A, it uh, I can start to feel the life coming out of the material. It tells me stories. It tells me um, it, it tells me things that uh, through the feel, mm. through the imagery and the feel, and, and and as I'm carving it, I, I it tells me stories of uh, that I that I can't read from books. It, it just <laughs> it's a dialogue that is kind of unique. Oh, that and, that that. Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, other artists feel the, I uh, feel the same way too. But for me, it does it. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's another way to learn about my Inuit uh, mm-hmm. culture. And and you were saying that you you didn't have that uh, 
that luxury of, of learning your language. You lost all that from the residential school system. Um, but this has been a way for you to to regain and relearn your own your own history and your mythology and your your language to some degree. But you, you also mentioned language, though that your yeah. your particular your your native language is is dormant. Well, I mentioned that uh, my language is the language itself is dormant. I I'm really embarrassed when I'm uh, when I travel to the Arctic and I'm unable to communicate with people, mm. native people, mm. and I explained that I, right. I, I just shrugged myself, and but um, but no, through no fault of your own, that's true, that was taken uh, from you. So, uh, yeah, you're true. It's true. Uh, through no fault of my own, but I'm making every attempt to learn my language. I, I can, mm. I can still count to five. After that, it's many. So, <laughs> and. Uh, but uh, I, I, uh, I, when I'm working in my studio, uh, words come out of, out of the blue. And mm. why did I say that? Mm. It, it must mean something. But, but I, I spoke to someone, that, one of my school buddies, in long distance, and he said, "You uh, mentioned something very interesting to me." Is that this is? He uh, said, "He said, David, you." you 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 blab you blab out loud certain words. You know why? It's it dormant, but it's in your DNA still, mm. and uh, uh, words are trying to come out, and, mm. uh, and you're uh, it's there, but it's locked in. So mm. yeah, uh, eventually it'll it'll uh, right. it'll come out of my system. Yeah, yeah. Now, but I understand. Uh, if there's a, an object and I, the words come out and I, I the, but the uh, the something is close to uh, I, I'm close to understanding mm. or trying to speak the language, mm. but I make every effort and mm. most times I'm not very successful at that. Right. So we swear a lot too, like in, uh, <laughs> in uh, Native Inuktitut. Would you like to hear some? <laughs> So I, not, Maybe not when we get off the air, <laughs> but uh, it's all part of the process. It's all part of relearning, mm. relearning how to. Because I, I spoke fluently when I was a child, mm. and mm. Uh, mm. yeah, and suddenly it, it all disappeared. So you mentioned your brother, um, and um, was was. His exposure to the art world and and carving uh, a big influence on you getting involved with it. Well, he, he I, 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 uh, I, 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 definitely grateful that he mm. introduced me to stone carving, mm. and because uh, he's got two years on me, he studied at uh, he he studied at the University of Fairbanks in Alaska, mm. like sculpture design and oh, yeah. tools right. and. And uh, jewelry design, so okay. he's yeah. always got two years right. on me. Right, we've always been competitive. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he, I I used I started off in the West Coast, uh. and uh, he was covering all all parts of the rest of Canada, and mm. he decided to move to the West Coast, and oh, yeah. I decided to leave. So uh, <laughs> I'm here on, uh, in Eastern Ontario. 
country's not big enough for the two of us, he said. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and yeah, he, he does well for himself. Mm. He's, uh, he's, he's a very talented individual. Mm. And, uh, and sometimes we work together, but not, not too well. So does he have any more command of the language than you do, or is, is it... we're identical? Yeah. He uh, he doesn't know how to speak right, right. our language either. Okay, listen, David, we have to take a pause, um, but don't go away. Stay right where you are in that chair because we're going to come back and and speak with you after this. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. Stay tuned. We'll come back and speak more with David Rubin. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And I'd like to just let you know, uh, before we get back into our discussion with uh, David Rubin, that coming up at 1140, we will have Kathleen Martins on the line. She is an investigative journalist with the Aboriginal People's Television Network. She has been kind enough to join us on the air from Gatineau, Quebec, where the final report of the missing and murdered Indigenous women has been uh, concluded, and uh, that uh, she's going to give us a, a report on that. So please stay tuned at 11.40 a.m. right here on Element FM. David Rubin is our guest right now. He is an artist and sculptor, and I also understand he is a big Lady Gaga fan. <laughs> well, I, I did see the movie. and uh, You saw the movie. Like, like a lot of guys, might have fell in love with her or something. <laughs> okay. My wife's sitting behind you you there. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Are you going to be in trouble later? No, just a boyhood thing. (laughs) Well, that's a teenager, whatever I mentioned the name. (laughs) Well, that's great. Um, So, listen, we were talking about how you you got into being a sculptor. You work with other things uh, in terms of. Uh, uh, materials, as you as you mentioned, stone, antlers, bone, steel. You work with steel. I uh, uh, when I started working larger, larger materials and mm. stone, mm. I I had to uh, rather than put bases on them. I mm. what I did was I incorporated uh, metal mm-hmm. to suspend okay. the material. Yeah, yeah, and it gives it. Great new dimension and and, uh, and the visual dynamics are very okay. very yeah. dramatic. Interesting. And I also started working with bronze bronze oh. casting. Oh wow! Which is very unusual for yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. How is that to work with? I I don't do the actual work. I I I create the images for okay. for bronze casting. Yep. At the local firm in uh, Mississauga that does all mm-hmm. the bronze casting. Okay. I finished one. Uh, just this, this, this year, uh, it's called Dancing on the Moon. Mm. You know, it's a female dancing on a crescent moon, mm. but uh, it's also symbolic of the concept of dancing on the moon. For me, was uh, uh, it's like someone, some an individual, giving it their ultimate best, mm. and uh, mm. the reward would be. Like dancing on the moon, it's the <laughs> ultimate. Uh, mm. It's the uh, ultimate feat. Something you said prior to the break uh, about when you when you're working with materials and you started to learn about your mythology, you started to when you hear the stories, you started to get these images in your mind, and then 
those images started to come to life, and they're the things that you bring to life through your sculpture work. And you said, you said something that that triggered a, a, a something I'd heard of before. And you said other artists you you felt probably had the same kind of uh, um, uh, feeling. And I remember hearing something about uh, I'm not sure if it was Michelangelo or who it was that said uh, something about their when they were uh, sculpting. And they said, you know, carving out a piece of stone, a large piece of stone, they said, it's already there. I'm just chipping away the outside to reveal what, what's there already. I thought that was really interesting. It made me think of what you were saying. I guess it would be similar. Like mm. uh, like once you see the image in mm. your mind mm. or in the material, you, you just draw, draw yeah. out the image because yeah. uh, you know what it looks like already. So. Yeah. That's like a shortcut. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My wife would call it a shortcut. <laughs> yeah, that's a shortcut, David. But um but it 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 guides you into uh when you're when I'm pre-cutting, I I try not to overcut. So mm. I know what the image looks like, so right. I I'm always careful not sure. to overcut right any any material cuz I use a lot of uh I use a lot of uh, uh, like electrical tools and oh, stuff. Oh yeah, sure. So I have to be, always be of careful. Of course, yeah, because if you overdo it, then you got to start again, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> and that can get expensive. I'm assuming. Well, I and I, time I, I had a lot of I made a lot of mistakes mm. when I'm uh, when I'm working, but right. but inside my studio, I'm more careful. Yeah. Outside the studio, sure. I'm like a Mr. Bean. <laughs> In my studio, I'm as right. careful as as could be. And uh, you know, you said you you draw something uh, uh, to get the the image going, but you're working in three dimensions when you're sculpturing. Right? It's a three dimensional object you're creating. That's that's a totally different process than just sketching something on a piece of paper. Well, I uh, like I mentioned uh, earlier that. It took me the better five, the best of five, five years to, right. to make a bear look like a bear, mm. and um, mm. and uh, it took that long to be to be able to present a sure. proper work, right. proportionate. Yeah, I, I mm. had to learn. I didn't learn proportionate until uh, took the better part of five years, and mm. now everything that I that I attempt. Or create it has to be proportionate, right? Because it it gives it more uh, more dynamic, yes, uh, visual effect. Yes. Do you have one particular piece that you're very proud of, or that that stands out in your mind as something that I don't know was very challenging, or it has a personal meaning to you, or that that just means a great deal to you in some way or other? I uh, there are uh, definitely a few. But I can uh, once recall the story of uh, that my father gave to me. The the story that he passed on to me was mm. uh, it's the shaman that steals the moon, then returns it, and uh, mm. it's, uh, it's uh, I can visualize it already. And mm. uh, it's a story of how the uh, uh, the uh, the shaman, uh, a sh- very powerful shaman, went to the moon. Mm. Stole the moon and uh, returned it gradually, hmm. and so when you uh, what, what, that's how you see the moon. That's yeah. how we right. they saw it. My ancestors yeah. saw it, 
as she says, the moon disappeared, and 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 the story is that it was stolen. It was eaten by uh, by a raven mm. that was very hungry, and when it slowly from starts from full, and it only becomes a a crescent moon, yeah. and uh, and slowly it builds back up, and right. uh, and the shaman that uh, that steals the moon actually transformed into a raven, and he brought back the moon and brought back came back to earth, and uh, he told the story of. How the moon disappeared, and uh, and uh, when he was telling the story prior to uh, to go into the moon, they had to bury him in a big snow hut, and uh, and they said that when he's ready, they have to chip him out uh, out of the cold. Right, and, and uh, his reward, the shaman's reward, was get me a new parka, some good food. And uh, I'll tell you more stories. <laughs> yes. That's great. What a great story. I appreciate you sharing that part yes. of that mythology you were talking about. That's wonderful. Nice. So your work has taken you uh, around the globe, as you'd mentioned. You you do a lot of traveling, and I'm guessing now you're doing a little bit of teaching? Yes. Uh, well, I, I've been teaching right from the start mm. at, at the early age, and... Uh, because people are always fascinated by, Jesus, uh, hey, look, there's an Eskimo there. He's stone carving. Right. I have to explain myself. Okay, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I, I, I try and tell people what I do with the materials and mm. explain and uh, also explain mythology and mm. and uh, how it fits into our our into our into our Inuit world. Mm. And uh, so, with these teachings, uh, they I my travels they span across the Arctic and all over Canada into mm. the states, mm. and uh, and I was uh, very fortunate. My long, first longest travel was to the uh, Cote of War in the Ivory Coast. Mm. My first introduction to Africa. I was fascinated by that. Wow. Now is and, uh, that with some of the symposiums you do? Is that or is it something? It was separate? part of a, a, the Canadian uh, trade show. Okay, I, I was I was in, I was introduced as a as a sideshow. Mm. I call it sideshow. As <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, my first travels to Africa, it was hundred some degrees. Oh, and, yeah. I, I, Literally, my tools—they got so hot I couldn't work. Wow! But uh, that my first introduction to the Ivory Coast, and, yeah. and I did do actual uh, stone carving there. Yeah, with uh, African, uh, uh, with uh, African Wonderstone. Uh. Really, relatively hard. It's hard, like uh, the the material they use in the West Coast, and. Uh, okay. And uh, the best part was I I, I created a, a shaman-looking mm. image, and uh, with African, uh, it looked as much African as I, I could get because mm. it was like I recall the shield that they have. Mm. Yeah. So the shield becomes like a like a mask, mm. and uh, mm. with no eyes, because uh, the uh, as a foreigner as an Inuit. 
I wanted to learn about their uh, their culture a bit, sure, and their mythology. So, mm. so the image becomes shamanic, looking African, and and just to explore their mythology and give me some understanding. Mm. And uh, and I uh, uh, somewhere in Toronto, the, the carving is somewhere in Toronto. Mm. Toronto or Gatineau, Quebec, I recall, and and I I, I traveled to the to the uh, Zimbabwe a few times mm. also. Oh yeah, I I love uh, I love their materials. Oh yeah, they have two hundred and fifty varieties of uh, of stone that that artists around the world would drool for, <laughs> and. Uh, Every other person's like a stone carver there. Ah. Many artists, uh, but uh, the sad part is that they're they're not so well privileged there in that mm. country, mm. fortunately. Yeah, but the uh, uh, just the feel of being there was very um, interesting for me because I, I I've learned how how people cope mm. with their lives with, mm. with the little that they have and. Uh, but their imaginations are brilliant. Mm. Their their imagination for sculpture very mm. brilliant, and uh, I have a, a an extensive collection of Zimbabwe art. It's not called Zimbabwe art; it's called Shona mm. Shona art. Mm. It's called. But um, but my most favorite sculptures are are created by an old woman. She's old. Yeah, she's blind. Wow. Yeah, wow. and she still sculpts. Wow. Uh, but the way she does it, uh, she asks her husband. Ah. Her husband uh, feels the stone for her. Uh huh. The shape and stuff, and this you should do that there, do that there, and and she goes, she goes about just stone carving and uh, chipping the stone away until. It's like I, like her husband seeing for him, yes, and, and yes. Uh, she she does all the physical. Well, that goes back to what you were talking about in terms of the images that you see in your mind. Yes. You don't need your eyes to see that. You can create that in your mind. Your your yes. eyes are the tools that help you to create the physical element. So he and, he uh, being her eyes is that's a wonderful story. I appreciate you just sharing. Talking that. about this, uh, her name is Malawi, Malala mm. Malawi. Mm. Well, anybody can, can check that woman. out. I, I'll have to do a sculpture for someday. Yeah, yeah. that's wonderful. Appreciate you you sharing that that story with us. Um, where can people see your art uh, and your sculptures uh, within earshot? Anything in Ottawa? Anything around Toronto? Where else can people see uh, you the, at, at the, galleries well, and things? The Harbor Front, mm-hmm. uh, John Key Parkette. Okay. Also at the AGO. Okay. Yeah. Definitely the AGO has a special little wing dedicated to uh, my brother and uh-huh. my work. And, nice, yeah. And uh, also uh, Ottawa at the National Gallery okay. and other other locations. Yeah. Yeah. Other than that, like uh, they're kind of scattered. I, I At the Winnipeg Art Gallery, mm-hmm. Vancouver, mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, my website... Uh, Oh, yes, your website. Uh, you, you can have to mention davidrubin.com. It'll list, uh, it'll give you an extensive view of uh, right. of 
Yes, and it gives a, a good background around you as well. So it tells a little bit about your story. It tells a little bit about what some of the things you've shared with us here this morning. So if people are interested, they can go and uh, read a little bit more about that. Um, and you have this, that's part of your artist statement that you that you have on your website. Pardon me? It's part of your artist statement that's on your website. Yes, um, it, it'll give you everything. Yeah. Uh, it's been updated. It's been polished up a little bit. I have a, have a good web designer, so he's mm. been very helpful. Mm. My wife's very helpful. Mm. She photographs all the works that I do and document. Right. She's a documentarian. Okay. That's her latest job. So uh, in mentioning, you mentioned Shaman earlier in the conversation, and uh, we're getting close to the end of our time. So I wanted to, uh, I wanted to uh, share this with people. It is on your, your website. Um, but it's something that I, I thought was very interesting. Um, so I'm just going to read this. This is in quotations. It says, With the introduction of modern religion, the shaman has slowly disappeared, but they live through the artists in the, this day and age. Myself and my brother, we are the extensions of that. We are just a tool for somebody else. Some of the sculptures that I, have, that I create are so powerful, it's as if they, eman- they are emanating a life force. And you wrote that in 1998. That's a, that's a very interesting and, and uh, very... Be an I, I, a Art Quarterly uh, quotation, I believe. But, Sorry? Uh, I believe it's from a magazine called the Inuit Art Oh, I see, okay. Okay, yeah. But, uh, I, yes, I, I recall that. Mm. And, um, what we're doing is uh, what my brother and I and a lot of artists are doing is we're 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 just documenting uh, documenting our, our our life story and the Inuit people mm. keep it all alive and and uh, reflect on how the mythology inspires the arts and likewise how the arts they inspire yeah mythology and uh, in my case I I create. It helps me create new mythology, also. Right. It's it's, uh, it's not insolvent. It's it's solvent. Mm. And it's always uh, it's always staying alive and uh, mm. finding new uh, new directions to 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 enter. Well, you know, you say staying alive. It's it's interesting. Inuit art, I think, particularly, does a wonderful thing of bringing things to life. There's you can see the movement, and you can see that life when it is a. Uh, it's it's when you see those sculptures, it's it's quite beautiful, and I think that's what makes part of it so magical to see. And people like yourself and other artists that are bringing it to life for us, it's greatly appreciated. And uh, I I just finished my most recent one. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's a, it's a it's called banishment, returning from banishment. It's mm-hmm. a. It's a, it, it looks like a flounder, like a bottom oh, fish. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In in our uh, in our mythology, like uh, uh, people do not like to shed blood, mm. so when they banish mm. someone, they they want to punish someone. Yeah. Uh, what they did uh, centuries ago, they 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 banished them to the bottom of the sea, mm. turn them into uh, bottom fishes, right? Until they uh, until they learn how to. Do something right, mm. and uh, uh, rather than jeopardize the lives of people, 
they're punished and mm. they're sent to the bottom of the sea. But this one is returning. Mm. He's in his mind's eye. He's he has to prove to the people, "I'll return. You'll return it," with on the condition that you can prove that you've you've learned your lessons. Right. And uh, so he becomes a teacher, and uh, and he's picked up a lot of. Uh, information because he's been banished for a long time mm. now he has the ability to return and share his knowledge so uh this knowledge is 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 alive and well and uh and he's uh, he's been well taught David, it's fascinating speaking with you. I really enjoy uh, hearing your stories and and uh, your mythologies and bringing those to life for us. And it really gives us, I think, a new uh, way of, of looking at art uh, from now on and going forward when we hear these kind of things as you explain it. It's nice to hear it from the artists themselves in terms of what they see and how they're bringing things to life for us. So I, I greatly appreciate you uh, you taking the time to be with us today, to share those things with us. And I wish you all the best in the future. Is there any final uh, something you want to share about even moving forward or, or, or something that's coming up for you that you have you want to share with us just before we go? Yes, uh, go Raptors, go. <laughs> <laughs> go Blue Jays, go. I'm not okay. too sure about the Maple Leafs, but we might have to... We, we might have to put a few good words for them. Other than that, thanks for uh, allowing me to, uh, to share the... A few good wo- few mm. words that I've had. Thank you very much. Well, speaking of few words, I know one word in Inuktitut, I believe, uh, from what I learned from being up there, and it is Koyanamik. Koyanamik. And that's how you would say it in your dialect? Yeah, okay, Western so, Arctic is Koyanamik. Koyanamik in the mm. Western. Mm. But don't quote me, though. Okay. <laughs> Just say thank you. Koyanamik. <laughs> thank you. Thanks the for last, joining us. Uh, I can recall one good one. After me, Obluk Nakuvanga. Nakuvana Ubluk Ubluk I mean today I feel good All right Much appreciated <laughs> That is uh, David Rubin And you can check him out online At david.rubin.com And find out all about his art And himself uh, It's been great having him online We're going to take a short pause And come back as I mentioned We're waiting for our call From uh, Kathleen Martins And she is in Gatineau, Quebec And she's going to give us an update On the missing and murdered Indigenous women final report Don't go away Stay tuned We'll be right back And welcome back to Element FM And Moment of Truth You are listening in Toronto and Ottawa And of course if you downloaded The Radio Player Canada app You can be listening anywhere Across the country By typing in 95.7 ELMNTFM Or 106.5 ELMNTFM We'd like to now thank Kathleen Martins for joining us. She's an investigative journalist with the Aboriginal People's Television Network. She is in Gatineau, Quebec, where the final report has been released for the National Inquiry's closing ceremony into the murdered and murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. Kathleen, thanks for joining us this morning. Oh, hi, David. It's my pleasure. So I want to thank you for coming on the air and giving us a, a rather, uh, you know, quick uh, uh, interpretation or, or just some words on this. What have you seen and what have you heard this morning? Well, it was a very powerful morning of ceremony. Um, you know, the commissioners came into the room surrounded by people dressed in red. 
there was representation from Métis, Inuit, First Nations. It was really a sight for the eyes and then for the ears as well as there was drumming and singing. And uh, they came in escorted like that. Uh, they acknowledged the Prime Minister who was here with his wife to accept the report and there are also some of the ministers there sitting next to the prime minister and then uh, we heard a morning of uh, songs that people had written to honor uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and you know it didn't get right into the nitty-gritty so to speak you know i'm Mm. sure most of your listeners have heard that the word genocide is in the report many times there's there's strong language like about rape and murder and racism and sexism and misogyny and yet Mm. you know it they kind of took their time unpacking all of that this morning Mm. well so and and how did that uh how did that affect the mood of things you know, I think it helped. You know, I, I had to pop into the washroom at one point and there were women in there crying. And I think it is an overwhelming experience for many who, who are here and are also watching in uh, what are called safe spaces that have been created in different cities. I know there's one in Winnipeg. They didn't want people to watch alone. Mm, uh, you know, right. it's very comprehensive. It's pretty intense. It talks about um, you know, generations of of colonial practices from residential school to the 60s scoop to the millennium scoop to, uh, you know, um, every part of life uh, mm. does not escape scrutiny in this report and the impact it has on um, tar- the, the, the violence that it in- breeds against women and girls and how it affects and infects all the services that they encounter through their lives, the justice system, the child welfare system, the education system. You know, it's, it's really uh, quite a read. And um, I think it helped to, to ground people here this morning to have the ceremonies. And um, in between, the, the commissioners took the stage and gave speeches about certain parts that uh, really had an impact on them and what they thought was most important. And then they had a very uh, interesting ceremony that sort of blended different Indigenous cultures to uh, bless the report and and kind of tie it up in in sealskin and a Métis sash and then hand it to him. And Mm. and they passed it along this row of of grandmother's council and they all (laughs) took turns hugging it and kissing it and and some even, you know, shed a tear over it before it was handed to the prime minister. It was was like a a little bundle that they said they were giving to Canada. And that's exactly what it was. It was a bundle. And and um, I'm I'm wondering if the symbolism of what they were doing was uh, was felt by the the prime minister and his wife. You mentioned that she was there with him. Do you think that did you see any expression on his face that would indicate that that the the weight of this was felt by him? You know, we we are used to seeing him um, at different apologies, different mm. somber. Uh, events. He did look uh, suitably, um, you know, serious about it. Yeah. Uh, he he had that look where he seemed present 
and he took the stage and he accepted it. There were two children, I'm hoping to catch up with them later to hear their story, but mm. two children that between the commissioners accepted it and then turned and gave it to the prime minister. And I know that that is something that's, um, that always uh, tugs at his heartstrings is when children are involved. And mm. so um, uh, his wife didn't take the stage with him, but then when he, he walked down the steps, a few steps holding the bundle and he sat down, she sort of touched it. And, and uh, Carolyn Bennett, the Crown Indigenous Relations Minister, was, is right there as well. And they're nodding. And, you know, they certainly seem to be present and, um, you know, acknowledging the seriousness of what they're hearing, but they have yet to speak. We haven't yes. heard uh, the press conference yet from him. Now, I understand there's about 230 recommendations in this for, for report? That's right. They call them calls for justice. Calls for justice, sort of, right. Sort of like the TRC had, yep. you know, calls for action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's, you're right, 231, they come from... Uh, about a thousand hours of, of testimony that was heard. The commissioners say uh, there were uh, 15 public hearings. Uh, there were then these sort of meetings where they would hear from police and uh, justice system uh, workers. They, they tried to, uh, they call them knowledge keepers through the process. Um, all of that, they say their research team which put together the report, you know, weighed their words against what was heard at uh, gathered during the hearings. Mm. And so they feel that it's uh, pretty solid uh, stuff, pretty solid interpretation, at mm. least, of what they heard, uh, and representation, I should say, rather, mm-hmm. of what they heard. And so they feel confident in giving that to Canada mm. to, uh, to, to think about, you know, and act on. Right. And speaking of acting on... Um, this this uh, this final report, of course, it makes as you as you mentioned these 231 uh, calls to justice. But we all know that that you can't do much without action and without probably some 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 investi- investing of dollars and time on the government's part to make sure that it does come to pass. And uh, I'm wondering, was there any mention of the dollars or the fact that that this must be acted upon? Well, certainly the the they say must imperative mm. a paradigm shift is required. Mm. All of these really strong adjectives and verbs are in the report. Uh, they also don't appear to want to let the government wiggle off any hook, any of the governments, mm. because as you know, all the ten provinces and all the ter- and territories are signatories they they um all agreed to uh you know can take what this report has to say and uh at least not if not act on it at least be aware of it so they uh, actually call for a number they call for a number of things an ombudsperson over indigenous issues they call for a high profile person to be put in charge of of making sure that this is actually enacted and doesn't collect dust on a shelf mm. like so many of these big reports do. Right. So they've pretty much thought of everything. Mm. Great. But you're but there is no there is no dollar figure attached. Right. I should that's an important question you asked and there's nothing about that in there. Kathleen, I want to thank you very much. That wraps up our time right now. I wish we had more, but I appreciate you taking the time to come on our show and, and explore this with us. And I hope we can do it again soon. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.
I also want to say Nyawa, Miigwech, Wanishi, and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, Aidan Wolf, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Janet Lamb, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa, Miigwech, and thanks for listening. This show was brought to you in part by APTN.